This is a fairly self-explanatory narrative, I think, in terms of what happens on the face of it. The people of Israel had been on the east side of the Jordan River. And of course, last Sunday night, we saw in Joshua chapter 4 that the Lord made the water of the Jordan River pile up and stop flowing so that the people of Israel could cross over the, the dry riverbed on dry ground, the way that the Lord had parted the Red Sea and allowed the people of Israel to go across. Now, we know from the previous narrative with uh, Rahab and the spies that the people were already nervous and already trembling because they had heard about what Yahweh had been doing for the people of Israel in rescuing them from Egypt, in bringing them across the Red Sea, and so forth. So we read again at the beginning of 5 here, as soon as the kings heard that the Lord had dried up the river, their hearts melted. There was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. So everybody was just afraid of the Israelites. Not because the Israelites were something. Remember, they were basically just a band of wanderers. And yet God had been with them to defeat Pharaoh's army before them, to defeat Sihon and Og. And now here he had dried up the riverbed and they were on their way to Jericho. So here are the Israelites that crossed from the east over the Jordan River to the west. Jericho lies, as far as I can ascertain, somewhere between 5 and 10 kilometers from the Jordan River. So the place of this Gilgal is a little bit hard to ascertain as far as I can tell. There's another Gilgal that's west of Jericho, but that doesn't make sense because they were traveling from east to west toward Jericho. So the Gilgal that's mentioned, it can't be the one that's west of Jericho. So they're somewhere between the Jordan River and Jericho, and they're on what's uh, called the plains of Jericho in chapter 5 and verse 10. They're within striking distance. They're within uh, at least visibility of at least spies or scouts, if not direct visibility. I'm not sure exactly how the lay of the land was. <clears throat> and here the Lord says that the people need to be circumcised. Now, <clears throat> for a whole army of grown men to be circumcised at once would not be a very great strategic military decision for reasons that I'm sure I trust you can imagine. Way back in Genesis 34, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, take revenge on the people of Shechem after Shechem had basically seduced and possibly raped their sister Dinah. The sons of Simeon and Levi go and they operate duplicitously and they say, yeah, we'll give her to you to be your wife to Shechem, but all the men of Shechem need to be circumcised because it's our religious thing, see? So basically there will be, be a cultural and religious problem between our people and yours unless you're willing to take circumcision. Well, Shechem says, well, I want this girl to be my wife. So he orders the whole city to be circumcised. And in Genesis 34 and verse 25, we read, On the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it fell secure and killed all the males. Listen, I don't have a comparable first-hand account of just how disabling mass circumcision is. 
But I will say this, if two men can come into a city and kill all the males, kill all the males, then listen, this must be very disabling. Because if it's literally a matter of life and death and you hear the guys in the next house over just screaming in pain as they're stabbed through, right? And you think to yourself, man, no matter how much it hurts, I just have to get up and defend myself. And yet, Simeon and Levi just go through the whole city and kill everyone. I'm just going to go ahead and say, circumcision, circumcising the whole army of adult men would have rendered the whole military basically useless based on what we see in Genesis 34. So what this tells me is that under the circumstances, this mass circumcision was an act of trust in God. The people had to, again, look to God to provide for them and to take care of them in a counterintuitive, miraculous way. So just as they were trapped between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea and they started saying, oh, we're all going to die. You just brought us out here to die in the wilderness. And we hear Moses say, look, be still. Know that he is Lord. Right? Just as they say, oh, there's no water out here. You brought us out here to die in the wilderness. And the Lord gives them water from the rock. Just as they say, oh, there's no meat. How could there possibly be meat for this whole number of people? And God rains down the quail. The temptation here for the people would be to say, what? Circumcising the whole army on the plains of Jericho? This is going to leave us totally vulnerable. Have you brought us into the promised land simply to die? Simply to taste of the promised land and have a little teaser of the promised land to set our feet in it and then to be massacred? This would be the temptation. But, lo and behold, this is not what the people do. Instead, the people are obedient and there is implicit exercise of trust in God that He will be our protector. As He has supernaturally protected us from the waters of the Jordan and preserved our shoes in the wilderness and so on and so forth, if God has commanded us to be circumcised here on the plains of Jericho, then the Lord will take care of us in spite of our inability. We should know that sometimes obedience is inconvenient. Sometimes obedience is even dangerous. Sometimes obedience is costly. We know firsthand that sometimes people get fired from their jobs for obedience. We know that sometimes obedience doesn't result in the reconciliation of relationships, but actually being obedient to God and not compromising ends up driving a further wedge in relationships. For how can two walk together unless they be agreed? What fellowship has light with darkness? And sometimes being obedient with somebody who is walking in the darkness leads actually to a further rift of that relationship and so on and so forth. Sometimes it doesn't work out for your health. Sometimes it doesn't work out for your money. But we must trust God and be obedient to whatever he says, even if it is scary for us. <laughs> and indeed, circumcision was obedience under the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants. If we go back to Genesis chapter 17, we read 
the Lord speaking to Abraham. And he says, As for you, Genesis 17, 9 to 14, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And I was reading this week, Sam Renahan, who's a pastor out in California, says that the language in Hebrew is actually stronger than it's been brought over to us in the ESV in verse 14, which I just read for you. What it actually says, apparently, in the Hebrew is closer to this. Whoever does not cut off the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. So there's a very clear parallelism here. That this is directly connected to being in the covenant. And if you choose not to do this, you are not in the covenant. If you do not cut off your foreskin, you are cut off from your people. As we see here uh, in Genesis 17 and 11, this is a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham and his offspring after him. We know, of course, that circumcision was repeated in the Mosaic Covenant. John chapter 7 and verse 22, Jesus says, Moses gave you circumcision. And then in brackets it says, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. Is The context is not pertaining to what we're dealing with tonight, but that little snippet from Jesus teaches us that Moses repeated, he didn't originate circumcision, but did repeat circumcision in the Mosaic Covenant. And so again, circumcision is a sign of being in the covenant. What covenant? The Abrahamic covenant. The Mosaic covenant. <clears throat> and if you were in those covenants, it was imperative that you be obedient if you're a male, to be circumcised. Now, we read in Genesis that they were to be circumcised on the eighth day, whereas we read in Joshua that this, they're being circumcised as adults. One thing that we may ascertain from this is, frankly, better late than never. Sometimes you realize that you should have been doing X, Y, or Z all along. And you grow in your Christian understanding and you realize that you were wrong about this, that, or the other thing. Better late than never. Right? It's still better to be circumcised for these guys later as adults than it is to just say, well, we missed the window. Whatever. Right? But notice that circumcision was obedience under the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants. Circumcision, therefore, being a sign of being in the covenant also obligated to further and in fact perfect obedience to the conditions of these covenants. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 3, Paul says to Gentile Christians who are wondering whether they had to be circumcised or not to be legit, 
He says to them in Galatians 5.3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So in other words, circumcision belongs to that covenant. If you want to take circumcision as a sign of being in that covenant, then you're under all of the stipulations of that covenant. So be aware then that the, the promise is do this and you will live. Right? The one who does the commandments shall live by them. Romans 10. If you accept circumcision, then all of a sudden you're under that works-based covenant, which was intended always to point us to Christ. But cursed is everyone who relies on the law. As it says in Galatians 3.10, For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do that. So, Paul basically is saying to the Galatians, look, you want to be a Jew? You want to be in the Abrahamic covenant? You want to be in the Mosaic covenant? Alright? Just be aware, if you do that, you're obligated to fulfill all of the conditional, all of the conditions required in those covenants. And we know at this juncture in redemptive history that cursed is everyone who tries to be justified on that basis because you can't do it. Rather, these covenants were intended to lead us to Christ. Galatians 3 says, and so Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. But let me, let me circle back around. I'm getting ahead of myself. Because circumcision was a sign of being in the covenant, the people at Gilgal had to take serious thought that to the covenant to the conditions of the covenant, to the promises that Yahweh had made, to the threats that Yahweh had made. And they had to decide, are we going to be Yahweh's particular and peculiar people? Or will we remain outside of the covenant people like the rest of the nations? And accepting circumcision at Gilgal therefore involved a heart check, forcing sincere introspection and eliciting a certain devotion to Yahweh. Essentially saying, yes, we will be your people. I was trying to think of a way to uh, illustrate this. Maybe this is a bad illustration. Alright, but let's say like let's say like the Crips and the Bloods. Alright? Look, certain neighborhoods, if you want to go put on a blue bandana, all of a sudden that obligates you. It's not, just, it's not just an action in and of itself. But all of a sudden it means that everything that goes with rocking a blue bandana in that neighborhood is entailed in that action. Likewise, if you're in another neighborhood and you, you want to wear some red, right? all of a sudden you're obligated to conduct yourself accordingly as someone who belongs to a certain group of people. Something like this, probably not a perfect analogy, but something like this is what was entailed in receiving circumcision. It's that I am now in the covenant that God made with Abraham and his offspring, of which the Mosaic covenant is a connected development. And I am in this covenant, and I am obligated to all of the conditions of it, and I am heir to all the promises of it. And so it wasn't just a... 
external action, but there was also a heart dynamic involved in this. And people knew that. They knew that even at this juncture of redemptive history. Way back in Deuteronomy 10, remember Moses is dead now, but way back in Deuteronomy 10, when Moses was still alive, he says in verse 12 and following, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set His, His heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after you, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. The idea that circumcision wasn't a mere external act but was supposed to be accompanied by introspection in terms of what it means to be in the covenant, to be God's chosen people. This is a very much an Old Testament idea. And of course, for the infants who were circumcised on the eighth day, they didn't have the, that introspection at the eighth day. And yet as they grew, they were to understand that this is the people that they belong to and their bodies are circumcised and their hearts also ought to be circumcised to act like God's peculiar people, to act like God's particular people upon whom he had set his love in distinction from all the other peoples of the earth. They were to recognize that the external symbol brought with it a whole identity. Just like if you were raised in a crip household, this is why we wear blue, right? The similar kind of idea is conveyed here, that they were raised to understand that this outward marker was not just divorced from a lifestyle, was not just divorced from the characteristics of the people and so on and so forth, but was to be accompanied by circumcision of the heart and a wholehearted devotion to Yahweh. Now, here's a question. Did, did physical circumcision result in that state of affairs whereby all the people who were circumcised also had circumcised hearts and followed God devotedly? Well, no, of course. Of course not, it did not. There was an outward objective aspect of truly and legitimately belonging to God's covenant people of which Circumcision was an entry point. And so even in this passage before us, Joshua 5 and verse 9, the Lord says, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. There is an objectivity to the fact that irrespective of where people's hearts were at, objectively speaking, everyone there on the promised land 
or in the promised land was no longer in Egypt. Everyone in the promised land had been rescued from the pagan syncretism of Egypt, which surely some of them fell into. They had been rescued from the mistreatment and the oppression and the hopelessness of Egypt. And so there was an objective sense in which God had cut off all of the bad things about Egypt from them by bringing them out and bringing them to this promised land and circumcising them. Everyone who was there at the promised land on the plains of Gilgal was legitimately in the covenant. Every single one of them was actually in the old covenant. You couldn't go around and say, well, is your heart right? Well, if, so, if not, you're not in the covenant. There was just an outward physical dynamic that if you are the children of Jacob, and if you have cut off your foreskins, then you are therefore not cut off from your people, and you are actually in the covenant. But we know that being, even being in that covenant did not automatically produce the heart change that was supposed to go with the circumcision, that was supposed to correspond to and accompany the circumcision. So there were many Israelites, many children of Abraham, many children of Jacob, who were circumcised physically, but who never had their hearts circumcised. We could think, for example, of Ishmael, as opposed to Isaac, Abraham's son. We could think also of Esau, in contradistinction to Jacob, Isaac's sons. These men were legitimately circumcised, but they did not have circumcised hearts. Therefore, not all Israel is Israel, as Romans chapter 9, 6 and 7 said. You can think of Dathan and Abiram, who rebelled against Moses in the wilderness. You think of David's son, Absalom, who we've been reading about in Samuel, circumcised physically, but not circumcised of heart. Think of the evil king Manasseh. Little gospel tidbit, I think at some point, the most wicked king of Israel ever actually became a Christian, which is awesome. Uh, that seems that the Lord extended grace to him later in his life, but that's neither here nor there. At the point when he was being the most wicked king ever, his heart was not circumcised, even though his body was. <laughs> Judas who betrayed Jesus, physically circumcised, but not circumcised of heart. The Pharisees, by and large, again, we know from Acts that later on, some of the Pharisees believed. But by and large, at least during the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, it seems most of the Pharisees rejected the Christ. And so they were physically circumcised, but they did not have the accompanying circumcision of heart. And so... The covenants to which circumcision pertained, the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, did not actually produce the heart change that ought to have been connected to the visible sign. The Mosaic covenant being in it didn't automatically mean, it did automatically mean that your body was circumcised, it did not automatically mean that your heart was circumcised. Likewise, being a child of Abraham meant that your 
body was circumcised, but it did not automatically mean that your heart was circumcised. <clears throat> the typology is strong here in this passage. There are real historical events. The people of Israel crossed from the east to the west into the promised land and are really historically circumcised in the plains of Gilgal. This is not a myth, this is not a legend. It's a real historical event. And then to go on to conquer the promised land and to live there, and so on and so forth. But this whole rescue from Egypt and God leading them through the wilderness and bringing them into the promised land, making for Himself a people who were rescued from hopelessness and defilement and idolatry, having all that rolled away, the reproach of Egypt rolled away, and becoming a people who trusts and obeys God from the heart and lives as His peculiar and particular people, and God leading them all the way through a great and terrifying wilderness and bringing them to a promised land. This is what God is doing, ultimately, through redemption. This is what God is doing ultimately with Adam's race. But interestingly, the earthly exodus, the old covenant that pertains to it, even the promises made, uh, the covenant made with Abraham concerning himself and his offspring, did not actually produce the kind of people that would trust and follow God the way that they ought to have having been His rescued people. The Old Covenant cannot produce even what it typifies, even what it foreshadows, even what it symbolizes and signifies. Thus, Hebrews 8 tells us that there is another covenant. It says that the covenant that Christ mediates in Hebrews 8.6 is better implicitly than the old covenant, which is becoming obsolete and passing away. The old covenant required a righteous people who obeyed God and received the blessings of the covenant. It required people whose hearts were circumcised, as well as their bodies. It required people who followed God devotedly, trustingly, obediently. But it did not produce such people. The Old Covenant shows us the insufficiency of externalism. Sometimes I think to myself, how could people see the plagues and not follow Yahweh devotedly? How could people be led across the Red Sea and not follow Yahweh devotedly? How could people get water from a rock and not follow Yahweh devotedly? How could people follow a cloud by day and fire by night through the wilderness and find that their shoes never wear out and not follow Yahweh devotedly? But what we see is that there is a heart change which is required, but which is not part and parcel of belonging to that covenant. And so there is a need for a better covenant. If that first covenant had been faultless, Hebrews 8, 7, 
there would, been a, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But the whole logic of Hebrews 8 is that the blessedness that God has always intended to bring Adam's race into could never come about by people's obedience to the law. Even if there were all kinds of external threats attached to disobedience and external promises attached to obedience, even if there were wonderful, miraculous signs, because we are fallen in Adam, because our hearts are corrupt, because we are, as the hymn writer says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That covenant could never bring about the blessedness that was hypothetically offered in it. And so as it is, there is occasion to look for a second. And what happens is that Jesus comes as a seed of Abraham. Jesus comes as a son of Jacob. And Jesus obeys the law perfectly on our behalf so that all of the promises that pertain to the Abrahamic covenant and to the Mosaic covenant are earned and merited by Jesus for all of us who have faith in Him. And so the covenant which ends up being the saving covenant and the effective covenant is not the covenant made between God and Abraham, nor is it a covenant made between God and Moses, but it is a covenant made between God and the man, Christ Jesus. And in Him, all of the promises of God find their yes and amen. As I was saying this morning, everything that God intends and desires to give to us, He gives to us through Him. And so, in Christ Jesus, we find that we receive an inward circumcision. Colossians chapter 2, 11, says that in Him, that is Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh. In Romans chapter 2, speaks likewise of an inward, internal circumcision. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And so it is in Christ that we find that we actually receive the inward circumcision that we need. And because that is the Things signified as opposed to the sign, the sign becomes redundant. And therefore, as Paul says in Galatians, we have no need to be circumcised. All of the things which were mere signs, mere types, mere symbols, mere foreshadowings of spiritual realities that would be brought to fulfillment through Christ, all of these things drop away. And we find that we have in Christ Jesus a pure mostly spiritual religion. There are physical things like the eating of the the bread and the drinking of the cup. But we have a covenant which is mostly spiritual in the sense of we're not literally being fed with water from a literal rock. We're not literally eating manna from the ground, but Christ is our bread. And Christ gives us living water. We're not... uh, literally 
going, making our way through a great and terrifying wilderness. But isn't this world a great and terrifying wilderness, spiritually speaking? And we're on our way to a promised land, and so on and so forth. And we have received, who have come to faith in Christ, we have received the spiritual circumcision, which ought always to have accompanied the physical circumcision, even in Old Testament times. So in Christ, we become a people with new hearts, having had the impurity of what Colossians 2 calls the body of flesh cut away from us. Though there is remaining sin and corruption, there is a real newness. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new, is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And so now the, the general tenor of our lives is that we follow obediently and trustingly. Of course we say, if anyone says he is without sin, he is a liar. And he makes God a liar in 1 John chapter 1. And yet, we also read in 1 John that if anyone does not keep his commandments, then he is a liar also. And so the general tenor of our lives is to follow obediently and trustingly. And as these people have to trust that God is their protector, and circumcise their bodies in this situation, and in circumcising their bodies, take stock spiritually of do we really want to follow Yahweh? Do we really want to fly the game color, so to speak? We ought to have that same thought process. And though we don't need to be physically circumcised to follow Jesus, we ought to make sure that our hearts are trusting and devoted and obedient to God as His redeemed people who are on our way to a promised land, the way that these people's hearts should have been. If God is with us, as we, by chance, read in Romans chapter 8, who can be against us?